Hey folks, welcome back to the Bless You Boys podcast. BlessYouBoys.com is your home for all things Detroit Tigers baseball on the SB Nation platform. I'm your host, Brandon Day. Um, I'm going to ride solo tonight. Um, and before um, we really get into what's going on with the show tonight, um, it's just going to be me solo uh, rambling at you for probably a solid hour. So uh, be forewarned. Uh, Miss Ashley McLennan is on an epic baseball vacation um, throughout the Midwest. So she will be gone uh, probably next week as well. Um, and I will try to bring in some guests. Uh, I know we've been off a little while. Um, that wasn't really my, my intention, but um, I've actually spent a day in the hospital over the past two weeks and I've been kind of kind of dealing with something, um, nothing dire, um, nothing fatal, um, but it has kind of uh, taken the wind out of my sails um, even more than the Tigers have um, of late. So we just decided to take a little bit of a mid-season hiatus, um, but there's been so much going on um, kind of off the field that I thought I would uh, jump on tonight and just kind of talk about a few things. Um, I'll talk a little bit about um, the Avila extension. Um, I've got a few few notes on some of the Tigers' prospects I wanted to share. <clears throat> um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about, about bat speed specifically um, as it relates to some of the Tigers' prospects. Um, and maybe I can dispel some of, the, some of the notions I hear from people out there um, who maybe don't quite understand um, what that concept means um, and why, why it's such a, you know, an important part of evaluating young hitters um, and such an important part of, um, of developing young hitters. Um, which is, of course, a subject that the Tigers could probably use a good deal of um, instruction on. Um, that instruction can't come from me. Um, I'm not a hitting expert, so I'm not going to break that all down for you. But I think there are a few things I can share that, for some of you guys, um, might be helpful. Um, and this has just been on my mind because I started reading uh, Ben Lindbergh and Travis Sawchuk's marvelous new book, on The MVP Machine which is sort of about the, really the teaching um, and learning revolution in baseball that's going on. Um, it's almost like a, like sort of a third money ball period we're on here um, that is that is really drastically different than, um, and almost completely opposed to um, some of the principles that were espoused, you know, famously by Billy Bean um, and some of the others from, you know, from the era that saw, you know, on-base percentage become, you know, one of the key ways that teams evaluate hitters. Um, so, I'll do what I can with that. Um, we'll get into some of these topics, um, but we'll start off with the uh, with the Avila extension and go from there. And as some of you know, um, hopefully most of you know who are regular readers of the site, um, we released our updated top 30 prospects list for the Detroit Tigers um, just, ooh, just a few days ago, end of last week. Um, and we'll be writing up reports on all 30 guys, um, as well as some of the fringier candidates that, um, that we're at least interested in who may have a chance to make an impact over the, the rest of the uh, season um, and, and heading into next year. So um, in the weeks to come with Ashley Gunn, I'm going to try to get some of the staff members on, um, possibly Keenan Carter, uh, maybe Adam Dubbin, Jay Markle. Um, have some of those guys in, on individually and, you know, have a little bit of a chat about the list and the formation of the list, some of the arguments that we've had um, about the list and where different guys should, should be ranked. And um, so you can look forward to some of those episodes coming and then um, probably, you know, it will probably be about two weeks. Um, we'll get back to normal. Ashley will be back and we'll be heading into August and getting toward the home stretch. Um, and there probably will be, at least hopefully there will be a bunch of, um, a bunch of trades going down both with the Tigers and around the league that we can discuss. 
So without further ado, um, let's get into the Alavila extension, which as you can all imagine, I was thrilled about. Um, the first thing I'll say about the Alavila extension is that really it doesn't matter. Um, and so if you were expecting me to lose my mind or be furious, um, that was never going to happen. I've spent a decent amount of time debating the subject with a lot of people on the internet, on Twitter, uh, as well as on the site, in the comment sections. Um, and there, you know, there've been a lot of, um, less than stellar arguments made, I think on all sides. And so knocking those things down just comes naturally. Um, it's just, just kind of how it goes. And so we've had some of those arguments, but fundamentally, you know, this didn't really change very much. I don't think too many people really expected that Chris Illich was going to make a change um, this offseason. And while it was pretty funny, uh, the timing of the extension coming, you know, on 4th of July weekend on a Friday in the afternoon, which is essentially, you know, how, you know, bad reports from politicians and, you know, companies and various agencies get released in the hopes that they kind of fly under the radar and don't draw a whole lot of attention. Um, that part did amuse me. But other than that, it just doesn't matter that much because in the end, if an owner decides he wants to fire his general manager... Um, the costs involved aren't going to stop him from doing so. And so it really, you know, it, in some ways it was kind of a formality. It was weird when it happened. Um, it was weird to hear Chris Illich talking about how much confidence he had in Alavila and how well he thought everything was going and how he, you know, was practically ready to do this uh, in spring training or before the season even started. But um, but in the end, you know, if if Chris Illich decides, you know, this isn't the way he wants to go and he changes his mind and, you know, actually kind of gets invested in what's going on here. Um, I would advise him certainly to hire, you know, an, an outside analytical group to, um, to evaluate his, his own organization and report back to him. Um, that's always a smart thing for, for anyone who owns a huge company um, to do, but, um, but I don't know if he'll ever do that. And so in the end, you know, this doesn't matter that much. It was kind of expected, and at least this offseason it was expected. And it was also, you know, just not that consequential from the standpoint that if Chris Illich decides he wants to change general managers, he'll just do it. Um, the money is negligible um, to someone like Mr. Illich. And so I don't think, you know, that, that you know, there, there needs to be much freaking out either way. Um, I think what was upsetting, though, is that this, you know, is a resounding, you know, kind of vote of confidence for an or you know for a front office and an organization that really has has failed um for, for the most part um since alavila took over now there were certainly challenges um the tigers you know when alavila took over were in pretty bad shape um they had an, an aging owner who cared nothing at all about anything um as far as the organization was concerned other than winning the world series and so the you know everything from the facilities to um, you know their their lack of you know an analytics database their lack of analysts um, working in in the front office you know all those things just weren't even on the table um, there was no investment in technology um, there wasn't a whole lot of you know poaching of talent from other organizations that go on and. In the end, this all kind of speaks to something that I've heard from other people I know who have worked in and around the Illich organization over the years. Um, 
I don't want to go too far here and, and, and kind of indicate who or what I might be talking about, but uh, you know, I mean, I know people who, who have interacted with the Red Wings on a professional level. Um, you know, the impression almost everybody has about the Illich organization is that they're incredibly loyal. Um, they're, inc- you know, very slow to change. They're, you know, not particularly aggressive um, in terms of their expectations um, at times. And, you know, I mean, we still have, you know, guys like, you know, I mean, obviously Jim Leland is still, you know, advising, you know, the Tigers on a, on a regular basis. And Jim Leland, you know, certainly was a, a great manager, um, a, a Hall of Fame manager, but in a certain sense, like much of this front office, um, you know, he's, he's kind of a dinosaur. And when you expect dinosaurs to evolve rather than simply trying to hire some mammals, um, you know, you're taking a huge chance that, you know, these guys will be able to get up to speed in a game that is changing very rapidly. And I, you know, I just, I just wouldn't make that bet. And I haven't seen anything from this organization um, to, to make me think that, that making that bet was wise. So I'm not going to go and, you know, and do all the Cubs and Astros comparisons that people want. Um, I would recommend people read The Cubs Way um, by Tom Verducci. Um, there's a book called Astro Ball all about um, Jeff Lunau and his redesign of the Houston Astros and how he turned them into a juggernaut that is consistently at the forefront of innovation in the game. Um, you know, it, to me, it's a point that doesn't really need to be made you know, particularly forcefully, it should be obvious to everyone that the Tigers, really for as long as I can remember, um, have never been at the forefront of anything and have really never been trendsetters in any way. Um, and I don't know if that's going to change. Um, I think the Tigers have done, you know, some some good things to, to start catching up. Um, but the, you know, the idea that they're ever going to be smarter and more analytically savvy and, you know, innovating in terms of how they teach the game to young players. Um, expecting any of that seems rather, you know, pie in the sky to me. Um, and it has to be remembered that Dave Dombrowski and Mike Illich's pocketbook um, were the two reasons that the Tigers were, you know, contenders for four straight seasons and won four AL Central crowns and, you know, made two World Series appearances um, under that group. You know, Al Avila, I'm sure, deserves some credit for some of what went on there. Um, probably some of the other, you know, the other folks that they've kept around do as well. But uh, but this is an old group who isn't isn't you know particularly savvy. They're not particularly innovative, and I don't think that's arguable. Um, we still have Lloyd McClendon as our hitting coach. You know, no one no one else seems to be particularly interested in in hiring Lloyd McClendon as their hitching, hitting coach right now. Um, Rick Anderson, you know, sat on the sidelines for years after the Twins fired him. No one was interested in hiring Rick Anderson. The Tigers weren't even interested in hiring Rick Anderson. Um, they hired Chris Bazio and at Rod Garden Hire's request, hired Rick Anderson as the assistant pitching coach. And after Chris Bazio flamed out in idiotic fashion, um, you know, Rick Anderson just kind of became the de facto guy. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm just going to leave that there. You know, the Tigers are not going to impress anyone unless something absolutely radically, you know, unique happens. Um, you know, they made the successes that they had on the basis of a bunch of good trades, um, a couple good draft picks that worked out really well, um, Justin Verlander obviously being the one, and the fact that they spent a lot of money. And I think when we look at, you know, where the Illich organization is right now and where the Tigers are right now, you know, there's no reason to expect that the Tigers are ever 
in any kind of you know near future scenario going to run a payroll above 180 million again. Um, it's much more likely that they're going to try to operate somewhere around 110 to 120 million, and maybe you know if they get themselves on the brink in three or four years, you know possibly at that point, um, you know they'll see the value in investing a bunch in, in free agent talent, and and trying to push things over the top, but um, you know rather than kind of breaking down everything that the the Cubs and the Astros did, I would just um, I would just ask people to go back and take a look at the situations both those two GMs took over. Um, they did not have a whole lot in the farm system. They had some. Um, they had more than the Tigers did when Alavila took over. But, you know, and well, and even that, you know, could be arguable as far as the Cubs go. You know, there were a couple good prospects in there, certainly. But um, it's not like either one of them inherited a, a good situation and none of those guys in- inherited a team full of stars that were then available to trade away. Um, so none of them had the, you know, had the ability to just, you know, deal Justin Verlander for, you know, three pretty nice prospects. Um, obviously, Franklin Perez um, has barely pitched for two years and that, you know, is looking like kind of a debacle there. But, um, you know, I'm sure when theo epstein took over the cubs he would have liked to been immediately able to you know cut 20 million from from their payroll that he could then use and also acquire a daz cameron and what looks like you know a franchise possibly catcher in jake rogers um you know those are nice assets assets to have but the but the key point without diving into all that too much is that you know neither one of those organizations was analytically savvy neither one of those organizations was progressive at all and one of the one of the arguments I've heard from numerous sources um, about the idea of, of changing out Alavila and hiring someone like Heim Bloom from the Rays, or trying to poach you know Jason Cloud, or to see if you could get Jed Hoyer um, you know to leave the Chicago Cubs and come here, or a couple other you know GM ideas that people have floated, floated around is that you know the Tigers you know don't want to change direction or that. You know, hiring someone new like that could somehow set them back. And honestly, that that's laughable. Um, if you hire someone good, they'll hit the ground running for you almost immediately. You know, if you hire someone who already has outside knowledge about how to do the things that modern, super successful teams are doing, they're going to come in and implement that all on top of whatever the Tigers think they've got going. Um, you know, there, there's no real track record of player development in the Tigers organization. Um, you know, there aren't really many successes. You know, Rick Porcello was a pretty high draft pick who, you know, was drafted with great control and had it right from the start and put together a decent career for himself here before moving on. Um, you know, Drew Smiley, that was a nice pick and he's a guy who kind of came out of nowhere a little bit, you know, and they've had a few others, you know, Alex Avila wasn't expected to do much, but in general, you know, these guys haven't developed hitters. They've developed a few pitchers and, there just isn't really any kind of a track record to bank on. Whereas when the Cubs hired Theo Epstein, you know, Theo Epstein took over a situation in which, you know, the Cubs were still filing all their scouting reports on index cards, people. They did not even have, you know, just a basic, you know, computer system set up to where all that information, you know, could be easily accessed and, you know, by anyone in the organization. You literally had to call, you know, like a secretary and have her go pull the cards on people um, to get the reports that you wanted. You know, that, that's the level of organization that Theo Epstein took over there. Um, things weren't quite that dire in Houston, but, um, you know, Jeff Luno took over with a ton of knowledge from his work with the 
St. Louis Cardinals and a plan and, you know, began implementing that plan immediately. Um, and the same thing goes with Theo Epstein because of the, the fact that he was already a good GM um, and already had a lot of experience hiring scouts, hiring good coaches and player development people. He was able to bring that knowledge to bear on the Cubs almost immediately. Um, you know, they came in there with a plan, a specific plan. Um, they wanted to build a team around Anthony Rizzo because he was a guy that they really believed in. And, you know, very quickly they went right out and traded for him. Um, you know, they knew they were going to trade away every major league asset they had, and they did pretty well in a lot of those deals. Um, but in the end, I'm not sure how relevant any of those things even are because the Cubs and the Astros, you know, organizations changed hands in a very different time. Um, it was a time when you could trade, you know, Jeff Samarja and another mediocre pitcher and get, you know, a high end prospect, a shortstop prospect like Addison Russell, even from the Oakland A's, um, in the current environment where free agents, you know, are making less apart from the, the absolute superstars, you know, teams aren't spending on free agents. They're hoarding those prospects. And over and over, we've seen that teams are much better. I mean, even, you know, even if I look at like, you know, fan graphs and, you know, the, the top hundred lists they've published over say the last seven or eight years, and they've changed hands as well, but they've gotten better. Um, teams are much more accurate at predicting who's going to be good and all of that is is down to better data and better better data gathering first of all and better data data analysis and a better sense of how to use technology and you know the modern coaching tools to help these guys improve um, there's also the phenomenon that you know the mvp machine which i mentioned earlier which is a book you should all go out and get if you're interested in the subject um, you know, kind of emphasizes is how, you know, we almost moved on to the point where players are, are doing a lot of this work themselves. And so, you know, you can argue whether or not, you know, the, the Tigers, you know, need to go crazy in that regard, because if their players are, are into it, you know, more often than not, you know, those guys tend to determine their own success. And of course, it's always that way. It's always how hard they work, you know, how smart they are, um, how honest they are with themselves and how honest the team is with them about, you know, their performance and what they expect to see. But, um, yeah, it's, um, it's just a different time. And, you know, we can bag on Alavila for the JD Martinez trade. Um, you know, it was obviously, you know, kind of a disaster. Um, I can also bag on numerous other GMs who, quite obviously should have made a better offer. I don't know if the Tigers reached out to, to seek counter offers. I assume that they did because that's kind of a no brainer. Um, you know, how different would the New York Yankees have looked with JD Martinez in their lineup or the Los Angeles Dodgers. Um, and it probably would have cost them like one fifty future value prospect and a couple of throw-ins because it wouldn't have taken very much to beat what the Arizona Diamondbacks had to give up for a guy who went on to hit what 32 home runs for them in the second half of that season and carried them basically on his back to a postseason appearance, a postseason appearance that didn't go particularly well, but the fact remains. Um, so we can bag on him for that. Um, but the circumstances were, were also tricky and we are at a time and, and you can look at that 2017 off season as, as kind of the, the first inklings or maybe the second year's inklings of the fact that teams just aren't giving up top prospects anymore. They're loath to do it. Um, you just don't see it that often. Um, you know, we talk about Matt Boyd and what Matt Boyd's return should look like. Um, you know, it's, it's not that hard to make a comparison to Jose Quintana um, in the deal that brought, you know, Jose, um, excuse me, Eloy Jimenez, 
and another really good pitching prospect in Dylan Cease to the Cubs for, you know, a guy who had a lot of control um, as far as team control, um, wasn't expensive throughout that control, and had a longer track record of success than Matt Boyd, but also didn't have the kind of peripherals that Matt Boyd has developed over the past year. But the fact remains, you're not going to get that kind of a deal right now. Um, and so once again, the Tigers find themselves, you know, kind of on the bad side of the market here. Um, when they were paying for free agents, free agents were, you know, extremely expensive and getting more expensive all the time. Now that we're trying to trade, you know, players for prospects, prospects are much more expensive. Um, you know, and you can argue certainly that some of that is just beyond their control. Um, and I think that's pretty much true, but it's also true that your plan should take into account, you know, the circumstances that you're, that you're operating in. Um, and if, if that's the way the circumstances are, then maybe the Tigers are completely wrong to be doing things the way they are and should just be hanging on to everyone and hoping to, you know, spend a modest, a more modest amount than they would have had to, you know, seven or eight years ago, back in 2011 or 12 to acquire, you know, a couple of solid position players um, and hope to kind of hit on a young guy who might still have some breakout potential. Um, You know, you could, we can all, we can, we can kind of bat that all around uh, one way or the other, but in the end, even right now, um, looking at what the, the front office had done, has done, and we'll put aside, you know, some of Mike Illich's excesses in terms of like the, the Jordan Zimmerman and Justin Upton contracts. Even if you look at all the other contracts, the free agent contracts that they've signed, um, you know, in terms of war value uh, per dollars, they've, they've been terrible. Um, they haven't done well in that regard. Um, they, they haven't spent well. You know, I mean, there's a few successes. Um, at, you know, signing Alex Avila before the 2017 season worked out really well. Um, signing Leonis Martin worked out well. Mike Fires worked out pretty well. Uh, but there's a whole host of names, you know, going back, you know, four seasons now that, you know, basically have produced no value and that in some cases the Tigers overpaid for, even though they were small amounts. Um, and, you know, s- small deals like Jordy Mercer or you know, Francisco Liriano or Tyson Ross or Mike Pelfrey, you know, signing Mike Avilas for no reason that anyone could possibly understand. Um, Mark Lowe, who a lot of us weren't real thrilled with, but we needed bullpen help. And I think a lot of us, at least I was at the time, was just happy that Al Avila at least had the foresight to realize that he needed to finally at least try to invest in putting together a bullpen with more than one or two pieces, um, which was something that Dave Dabrowski struggled mightily to do in his time as, as GM. But um, yeah, they haven't done particularly well in that regard. And when you look at the draft in 2016, you can kind of give them a pass because they didn't have second and third round picks uh, because of the signings of Zimmerman and Upton. And, you know, just getting Matt Manning in that draft is probably good enough. Um, and they also got Kyle Funkhauser, who obviously hasn't panned out the way we would hope, but um, was a pretty promising arm to get in the fourth round. So I'm not going to kill him on that one. Um, the 2017 draft, I think, was, was pretty uniformly panned, and probably rightly so. Um, Alex Fajardo may still end up surprising us, but um, at this point, I'm not real convinced that he's even going to be able to be a successful reliever. Um, there's still time, and so we'll just see how it goes. But um, but a guy you know, who throws 91, 92... Um, that comes in more like 90 miles per hour because he has one of the shortest strides you'll see in any 6'5 pitcher um, in baseball and really only has, you know, his slider to work with. Um, You know, betting on a guy like that to be, you know, a durable starter who can go out there and eat innings for you 
and even be like a back-end guy, um, you know, probably just isn't in the cards. You know, he's young enough and he's got the size at least where maybe some things can change. Maybe he can kind of, you know, build some more deception into his delivery. Um, I wrote an article earlier this year about the fact that he's trying to, you know, improve his posture and stand more upright, um, get his arm up earlier, um, start delivering the ball more on a downhill plane that kind of, you know, provides better movement and also kind of fits the type of fastball that he throws, you know, you can never say never with a prospect. Um, but Alex Fido kind of strikes me as one of those guys that like, you know, because he's a first round pick, people are still going to kind of hang in there with him longer than he really deserves. If you just kind of look at him, if you just watch him pitch and I know his numbers are pretty good. I know he strikes out a lot of guys. Um, you know, even at the double a level, there aren't a, you know, a ton of guys who have a plus breaking ball that they can command. And that is the one element that Alex Fido has, has regularly had going for himself as they does have a pretty good breaking ball. Um, the fastball does have some movement on it, but if you look at, you know, the guys who bombed on him, um, you know, good hitters at double a hit Alex Fido hard regularly. And we'll just have to see how it goes, but that draft didn't go well. Um, I don't think it went well at all. You know, we took Ray Rivera and overpaid him in the second round. Um, we took a prep catcher in the fourth round in Sam McMillan, who's, you know, showing some signs um, and overpaid him as well. And, you know, maybe that kind of works out and we get kind of a backup catcher out of Sam McMillan. But it wasn't a particularly good draft. And once again, you know, we took a fairly mediocre, you know, pitching prospect to take in the first round uh, rather than investing in a position player. And, you know, the Tigers have kind of gone on with that. You know, they, they've taken a lot of pitchers. That finally changed this year when they drafted Riley Green, who I love and I will end up talking about later when we get to the bat speed portion of this lengthy harangue you're all about to endure. Um, but, yeah, you know, that draft didn't go well. I think we have seen some signs that their process changed. Um, and, you know, it may be related to the fact that it was, you know, the 28 before the 2018 season was when they finally did get an analytics database developed. Um, they did kind of invest in the facilities quite a bit. Um, they started investing in technology. They at least anecdotally seem to have hired some new scouts um, or at least added to the scouting group that they had, which I have been kind of begging them to do because if you're not going to be super analytics savvy, um, there's a lot of scouts who have been let go. A lot of good scouts probably who have been fired by teams like the Astros who just kind of feel like they just don't need them that much anymore because they can gather data on basically any player, you know, via track man and analyze them that way. Um, so, the, you know, there's at least an opportunity in hiring people from outside the organization to, you know, bring in, you know, scouts who might know about a player that the Tigers don't know about. Um, it's the same thing as, you know, hiring an outside GM who was the assistant, say, for the Cubs, who might have, you know, a line on a whole bunch of different players and will bring that to the Tigers and, and the database that they already have, because that's proprietary knowledge. It's not like Alavila leaves and, you know, takes Dave Littlefield and David Chad. Um, and just as an aside, I would encourage you all just for fun to just go, um, just go Google Dave Littlefield um, and read his Wiki Wikipedia page and tell you um, how confident that makes you. Um, but yeah, you know, you could bring in someone with that knowledge and add it to what you already know. And if you hire the right guy, you're going to hit the ground running and you're certainly not going to lose any ground. Um, but that isn't the decision that they made. And honestly, I don't really want to just end up going on and on about this at this point. Um, you know, hopefully the Tigers are, 
are doing some of the right things. The Tigers did invest in some of the technology, like we said. Um, all the Rapsodo units showed up um, this spring training. Um, I'm not sure if they, they actually bought Edgertronic high-speed cameras, um, which are the ones that you know the Astros and the Dodgers and some of the other orgs um, have already got on. I know Edgertronic actually was unable to keep up with production because the demand suddenly <laughs> skyrocketed this offseason. Um, hopefully they've gotten something along those lines at least, um, if not that kind of thing already, because you know you can do an awful lot with those cameras. Um, and maybe I'll talk about that a little bit later when we get to the bat speed. Maybe that'll be another little element I'll talk in. Um, but you know, they did that. They, they they brought in the weight plates so that, you know, hitters can kind of check where their balance points are um, when they're swinging. Like, some of that stuff is cool. Um, and it's been cool to see, you know, that a lot of the, the younger Tigers um, and, and the Tigers prospects have really taken to that stuff. Obviously, Casey Mize, you know, made a really great impression on everybody um, by his fluency in using all that and the fact that he went out this, you know, this offseason and tried to rebuild his slider or at least, um, you know, kind of reshape it a little bit and had some success doing so. Um, and that was just going to his agents, you know, basically camp where they have all those, all those tools already set up. Um, so if you're thinking to yourself like, wow, you know, the Tigers have invested in all this technology. This is great. Well, yeah, but a lot of agents already have all that stuff, guys. <laughs> you know, um, you know, most, most good baseball camps around the country have already kind of jumped on, um, you know, driveline baseball, which has kind of been at the forefront of most of these developments, is real good about, you know, being open about what they're doing and how they're doing it. And so there's, you know, the revolution has spread, you know, pretty rapidly um, with those guys as one of the, one of the Pied Pipers, whatever you think about them, um, whether or not Kyle Boddy's been mean to you on, on Twitter, because you asked a question that he didn't think was intelligent or, you know, whatever, um, you know, you hear those complaints. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, I'm not sure that the Tigers have done anything to get ahead, but it is nice to, to hear Casey Mize using that stuff. Um, Matt Manning and Alex Vaido have both talked about how the two of them have throwing sessions where they, you know, they study the Rapsodo and, you know, play around with grips um, and spin and trying to trying to design their pitches to get a little bit more effective spin. Um, all that stuff is cool. Um, that's great. But um, we're just going to, you know, we are where we are. And since they've decided to kind of stick with this group, um, I could still beg them to hire some more outside analysts from other places and overpay some of these people to come in here and bring their expertise with them. Um, I would hope that Alavila would have the sense to do that. I'd have a lot better feeling about Alavila if he didn't feel like he was kind of scared or uncomfortable with bringing in, you know, outside people who might have a, a totally different and fresh perspective um, rather than sticking with, you know, David Chad and Dave Littlefield who, you know, both have track records of being, you know, pretty decidedly old school um, as, you know, as sort of his two top decision makers. Um, I think Scott Place, um, who's the director, basically he runs the draft for the Tigers. Um, he's the one who sets up the Tigers draft board. He's, you know, directs the scouting for, for all that. Um, it seems like he's gotten better. Um, I have to give a shout out to um, some of the, you know, the Tigers West Coast scouts, um, whoever it is that found Tarek Skubel, um, Hugh Smith, um, some of the some of the nice finds in pitchers that they've made over the past couple years out there. Um, someone's doing a good job out there. Um, you know, they, they found Jason Foley, um, who had Tommy John last year and is still, you know, kind of struggling, working his way back. But that's a big-time arm to draft late. And, you know, th they found him at a small school um, based on the work of an area scout. Um, so some of those things can give you confidence. Um, we haven't seen really much of anything come through the international free agent pipeline, but at least they've spent money on guys like Adinso Reyes and um, Jose De La Cruz, Pedro Martinez Jr. Um, I'm missing one. 
Uh, oh, Alvaro Gonzalez, um, another shortstop prospect that they, you know, that they spent millions on. Um, it's it's good to at least see them investing in some of those guys. Um, you know, just just this July second, they signed um, Robert Campos, um, who is you know a Cuban emigre who escaped Cuba to, well, we don't exactly know where, but um, somewhere in the Dominican or the island of <laughs> of the Dominican at least in general. And um, and kind of had that guy stashed away. Um, he, you know, he's a big son of a gun for a 16-year-old. Um, you know, there's always questions about you know the age of some of these guys, and um, you know, he's a, he's a guy who will who will bring those questions to mind uh, much the way like Kevin Maiton did, because you just look at him and you're like, wow, this is a big guy. But um, but you know, maybe maybe he turns out great. Um, but I have to say, you know, that the practice of you know signing these guys when they're you know, establishing a relationship, at least when they're 13 and 14 and convincing them to sign at that age or, you know, 15, somewhere in there is, is pretty standard. Um, you know, the, the Tigers were kind of crowing about this, like there was some kind of crazy coup that they'd put together, um, to, to kind of hide this guy and, you know, that no one knew, you know, what he, what he was doing and they didn't know that the Tigers were already in on him. Well, that, I mean, that's cute, but that's, that's just par for the course. Um, that's how it goes with most of the top international free agents. Um, but I also would say that, you know, if you're looking at like Fangraph's board of, you know, the top 30 international free agents this year and upset because the Tigers, you know, didn't sign any of those guys, you know, it's international free agents, guys. Um, these are 16 year old kids. Um, even more so than like in rookie ball, it's extremely hard to evaluate those guys. And so I don't think anybody needs to make a big fuss one way or the other. I'm just happy that the Tigers seem to be, you know, making some kind of moves there. Um, and, you know, and investing some money in some of the better guys, hopefully. Um, some of the other teams, you know, like the Yankees strategy is much more like, well, we're just going to wait and pick through the kids who might develop late and give out smaller deals to a whole host of guys you know, train them up for a year or two and discard everybody that we don't think can make it and hope we find a couple gems. And they've, they've tended to find a couple gems that way. So that's a different approach, but, um, but yeah, either way, um, we haven't really seen a whole lot come through the pipeline yet. So, you know, it's hard, it's hard to say no one has really been blowing anyone away at, you know, the Gulf coast league level and rookie ball. Um, you know, Wenzel Perez is, you know, impressed. Um, I think there's things to like about Wenzel Perez for sure. I'm interested in him. Um, I can't remember where I had him ranked, but it was somewhere, you know, around 15th or 16th. Um, there are people who had him higher. I think Fangraphs actually has him in the top 10. Um, they're they're really big on Wenzel Perez. Um, so, you know, so it goes. The Tigers have, you know, made some moves, but I think there's still plenty of skepticism that has to remain that this is, you know, that this is the group that's really going to bring us to the mountaintop or even get us to the point where, you know, you can hire the next GM and get us to the mountaintop. Um We'll just have to see. You know, I look at the you know the future rotation of Mize Manning, Scoobal, and you know maybe maybe Fiedo, Who knows? Uh, maybe Bo Burrows. You know, there's some guys like that. Um, Franklin Perez. You know, who just who knows at this point? Um, some of the things I've heard about him have been you know per particularly discouraging um, as far as whether or not he's actually you know got an actual shoulder injury or issue um, that's underlying all these problems, or whether or not. You know, he's just a guy who, you know, kind of can't hold up to the to the strain because, you know, every time a starter goes out there and throws a game, you know, he's hurting his arm. Um, you know, you come out of those games hurting, you know, and overnight you're sore. And, you know, obviously there's plenty of things that pitchers do to sort of alleviate that. But, you know, if you're not comfortable with that cycle of, you know, pitching, being in pain, 
having to put in a lot of work to, you know, to work that inflammation out and get yourself back in shape for your next start. You know, you're, you're just not cut out to be a pitcher. Um, and he's yet to prove that, it, that he's able to do that. So anyway, I'm going to leave it there. Um, I think, you know, it's still an open-ended question, certainly. Um, but I think some of the optimism out there, you know, some of it is his reason. And then some of it sounds an awful lot like Stockholm syndrome, where, you know, people begin to sympathize with their captors. And, you know, a lot of people are, you know, because we don't have any choice, you know, you want to believe that Alavila is doing a great job, um, that, you know, the people he's hired, um, that the people he's retained are doing a good job. And, you know, I just don't see any evidence of it as of yet. I think they've done okay in some areas. Like I said, I think the scouting's gotten better, but there's plenty of areas where I haven't really seen any improvement. Um, you look at things that they do in the minor leagues, like the fact that so many of their top prospects, you know, end up like batting at the end of the order and giving away a plate appearance every night when those plate appearances are precious development time. And then they have them give away another one far too often by having them trying to bunt for no reason that anyone can understand. Um, and it doesn't feel like the coaching staff and the player development people, um, you know, have caught up to the 21st century at all. It still feels like they're, you know, the Tigers talk way too much for my taste about the 84 team as much as that was the team of my childhood and I love them. Um, the game is radically different than it was back then. You know, trying to bunt 98 mile per hour fastballs under pressure, um, unless you, unless that's literally your skill and that's all you do. Like, yeah, good luck with that. Um, you know, good luck with wasting players' time on that kind of thing, especially when they're in A-ball, um, in, in live game action, when you have young players who need that development time, even those extra, you know, 10, 15 at-bats, you know, per month, you know, that's all development time. Um, and other teams seem to be getting, you know, their good prospects to the, to the league when they're 21, 22, 23, whereas the Tigers, you know, better prospects are all, you know, kind of starting to approach that age. And it feels like the Tigers are still going to slow play a lot of these guys um, for most of next season as well. Um, there's just a lot to be disturbed by. So I'll leave it there. Um, it's not, you know, not the most fun topic to, to discuss and... I think anyone can kind of have any opinion that they want to. And all I would say is that if you're, you know, one of those people who's a big Avila fan, just, you know, just temper your, um, temper your role if you can. And let's just kind of let it play out here. Cause I am, I'm just not having it right now. Um, and I see a lot of, a lot of people who, you know, have complained about a million different moves that Al Avila has made since he's been general manager. Now we're talking like they have all this confidence in him and it's like, yeah, well, you know, what, what, what changed your mind? You know, was it, um, when you all screamed about the fact that he retained Brad Ausmus for two more seasons um, while the team just kind of fell apart. Um, you know, did that, did that impress you? Were you happy with that? Were you happy with the fact that because they signed Mike Pelfrey to a two-year deal, they couldn't get rid of him when Daniel Norris and Matt Boyd were both pitching well in Toledo in 2016. And if you had brought either one of them up in, you know, late May, you know, you might have stolen another win or two along the way and got yourself into the postseason at least that one time. Um, I don't know. Did that make you feel good? <laughs> you know, there's a whole, the whole litany of things. Um, and I have a good memory, um, when I read things, especially, and I can remember an awful lot of people who are arguing in favor of Avila, who spent most of the past three or four years, you know, just lambasting him. And a lot of times rightly so for just about every move that they made. And now, you know, magically through the, through the powers of faith, you know, people are, people are much more optimistic. Um, as for the rest of us, you know, we're just gonna have to ride it out. And hopefully we'll start to see some of these top prospects, you know, Jake Rogers. Uh, maybe we'll see Bo Burrows later on this year. 
Um, Tyler Alexander has actually made some changes that I might write about soon. Um, I would at least like to see him over Ryan Carpenter. Um, I'm recording this after, you know, writing a recap for an absolute embarrassment of a game, which was basically a pre-planned embarrassment because when you start Ryan Carpenter, you are tanking essentially at this point. Um, you know, if the Tigers want to keep running Ryan Carpenter out there, you know, it's pretty hard to argue that they're not just trying to get the number one pick at this point. And you can also argue that that's probably the only only thing to play for at this point. So maybe that's the smart thing to do. But, um, but you know, don't beat around the bush. Um, and the Tigers' offense basically gave you a performance that, um, that said they knew exactly what this was about. And it's got to be tough to be Ryan Carpenter. Like, you know, yeah, he gets paid, you know, a good deal more for that one day when they call him up and, and start him and don't even let him kind of hang around and, and earn that major league money for a, for a while. Um, but you know, when you see, how does it feel to be the guy who comes into the clubhouse and everybody just kind of rolls their eyes and thinks, Oh God, why is that guy here again? What are we doing? You know, am I supposed to go out there and bust my butt? Um, when, you know, we're basically guaranteed a loss. And anyway, that's how it played out tonight. Um, it was brutal and my recap was short and succinct, um, to reflect just kind of how disgusting that performance was. Um, we'd at least like to see some of the young guys. Um, you know, we can, if we trade away Matt Boyd, which might happen, um, if we trade away Shane Green and Nick Castellanos, um, both of which I think have to happen, you know, there's, there's going to be plenty of opportunities for this team to be bad and continue to lose lots of games the rest of the way. Um, and if we finish with the first or second pick, you know, either one is going to have to be good enough. All right. I'm going to leave it there. <clears throat> Let's move on and talk about some happier things, um, namely Matt Manning, Tarek Skubal, and Casey Mize, um, who are, well, you know what, I'll add Anthony Castro to that list, um, because the Erie Seawolves are about to to put together, you know, one of the most for- <laughs> kind of fearsome rotations you will probably ever see in, in, in the minor leagues, and partly because the Tigers are slow playing some of these guys, and they wouldn't necessarily all be there um, in another organization, but... If you happen to live in the Erie area or can get out to see them, um, you're going to probably see some fireworks over there because that's uh, that's a damn good rotation. So let's just talk about a little bit of those three guys' recent performance, um, and then we'll kind of transition to um, just some of the topics that are on, that are on my mind reading um, a bit. I really only kind of just started the MVP machine, but, um, but these are things I've been thinking about anyway and kind of reading about some, some of the ways that some of the you know players like Max Muncie... Um, and a whole host of guys um, have, have kind of remade their swings or their approach um, have, have kind of sparked in my mind. Um, so we'll talk about those as well. And we'll take a quick break and I will be right back. Okay, we're back. And it's time to just talk um, to talk about the farm system just a little bit. I'm not going to go real deep into this. Um, we are kind of heading into the, you know, we're obviously into the second half now. Um, and one thing that will be really interesting to see is how guys finish. Um, so even if, you know, you can take a look at Daz Cameron's first half and it's been pretty disappointing. Um, Isaac Prades has held his own and been fine, but hasn't really, you know, kind of shown the kind of breakout potential that we were kind of hoping to see this year. Um, it's much more about how guys finish um, at a new level. You know, you expect there to be some kind of resetting and then you hope that if a guy is really developing, you know, he's going to start putting it together in the second half and you're going to start seeing that. Um, Especially because in the second half of a season, a lot of times, you know, the better pitching prospects get promoted out of there and suddenly they've got guys coming up from high A 
um, that, that hopefully they can take advantage of. Um, I, I'm much more interested in, in a guy's second half than his first half, um, especially if he's been at, you know, the same level all year. So there's just a tip. If, you know, if the guy that you've got your eye on or a guy that you like a lot hasn't really had a, a strong first half, um, that, that can all be, you know, completely erased um, with two months of strong performance. So if a guy has a good July, a good August, and, you know, finishes the season strong, um, you can still feel real good about, you know, the progress that, that such a player made. Um, it's just that you have to moderate it with the fact that sometimes the competition level um, will adjust a little bit as, you know, younger guys get promoted up into that league. Um, so that's the thing to keep an eye on. Um, we had two notable pitching performances tonight. Um, the first and probably the most important was the fact that Casey Mize uh, made a four-inning rehab start with the Lakeland Flying Tigers. Um, Casey Mize first pitched, um, you know, he's coming back from shoulder inflammation um, and first pitched five days ago, I think on the 11th. <clears throat> and in that start, he was wild. Um, he didn't have control of his fastball and his cutter uh, based on reports because the Lakeland, well, the Florida State League in general um, is one of the few leagues that you don't see a whole lot of on minor league TV. Um, and for the most part, you know, I catch a few Mud Hens games. Um, I still am planning to go out to Erie um, sometime, hopefully soon. Um, I was actually planning to do that kind of now, um, but we'll just have to see how uh, my, how my health holds up here um, and whether or not I feel like getting out there soon. I'd love to go out to Erie while um, all these guys are out there at the same time. Uh, but anyway, so I didn't get to see Casey Mize, um, but Casey Mize went out tonight. Um, well, in his first start, you know, he kind of got blown up in the first inning. And his pitch count was rising, um, didn't have good control. And so the Tigers did the right thing and got him out of there rather than letting him, you know, just throw and throw um, through a lot of trouble and traffic. Um, that's not the way you want a guy who's especially one as prized as Casey Mize um, to, to kind of have his comeback start. So, you know, they, they took him out of the game, had him throw a couple of, you know, side session innings, um, got him his work in. And he came back tonight um, and again, you know, looked pretty rusty in the first inning, um, walked a couple guys. Uh, gave up a couple hits and two runs, but then he settled right in. And from that point on, um, you know, it was it looked a lot like a Casey Mize start from what I saw, um, just kind of tracking pitches and how the at-bats went. Um, you know, he, he faced the minimum through the second, third, and fourth inning, um, struck out four guys, and threw 73 pitches. So he looks like he's, you know, basically back on track. Um, you know, the main thing in these things is just, you know, is, is he healthy? Was he able to get his work in? Um, that's two starts in a row where, you know, he's gotten his work in, um, he's built up his pitch count, and he should be ready, I would think, for a reassignment to Erie, or if the Tigers wanted to just get on with it, <clears throat> because Casey Mize is, you know, pretty obviously major league ready um, when he's healthy and good to go. You know, they can move him up to Toledo um, right now. I, I wouldn't expect that. Um, you know, they've been careful with him, which is smart, and I would assume that they'll probably, you know, send him to Erie, get him another start get him another start or two, make sure, you know, he's kind of got his groove back. And then I would think you'd have to see him at Toledo pretty soon. Um, you know, you're only kind of stagnating him to, you know, to have him sitting there, you know, facing guys who can't hit him, basically. And from what we saw the first half of the season, you know, Casey Mize is, you know, a major league ready pitcher already. Um, he's probably not too far from his prime as a pitcher if he's not there already, um, which is another argument for why the Tigers, you know, really have no reason to waste his time next year. Um, you know, if they want to wait through April and make sure they can, you know, control them for an extra year way down the road. Um, that's probably the smart thing to do. 
but you know Casey Mize should be in the rotation pretty early on next year, um, and I would assume that the Tigers will agree with that. Um, if they try to do some nonsense like you know having him at Toledo for most of next year, like they're going to call him up at the end of the season because oh this doesn't fit our timetable and all that, um, I'm going to probably blow a fuse, and probably most of you are as well. Um, when a pitcher is ready to pitch in the major leagues, he should be pitching in the major leagues. Um, you know this, this isn't Vladimir Guerrero Jr who's 19 and whose hitting abilities aren't going to necessarily degrade anytime soon. Um, you know, you, don't, you just don't know with pitchers. You don't know how long, you, you know, you're going to have until they, you know, suffer a, you know, a major injury that knocks them out for a year. Um, most pitchers do um, at least once, if not multiple times in their career. <clears throat> so I would expect to see him up next year. But for now, um, the only important thing is that, you know, he's healthy. He's good to go. Casey Mize is awesome. Um, so, Take that to the bank. At least we've got that going for us. Another thing we've got going for us is Matt Manning. Um, Matt Manning, you know, really, really grew just so much as a pitcher last year. I mean, it was really just like, you know, multiple leaps forward um, as a pitcher in terms of everything, in terms of his secondaries, um, in terms of like holding runners on, transitioning um, from the windup to the stretch, um, you know, everything. Command, the whole the whole works. Um, just, just look like a much more polished um, and poised pitcher who was repeating his mechanics much better. Um, you didn't see, you know, back in 2017, um, you know, it was, it was a situation that kind of scared a lot of people because, you know, he was a really raw pitcher. Um, the Tigers didn't give him too much work after they drafted him, and they held him back early in 2017. And when he came up, his mechanics, you know, were, were super wonky. Um, <coughs> excuse me, they'd taken a lot of time to you know, refashion his mechanics, um, change kind of some of the things he was doing. They got him driving a lot more on plane to the plate um, and less rotational and, you know, worked on his curveball. And, you know, we saw some signs of that at the end of 2017 because he finished really strong with the West Michigan Whitecaps. But that was definitely like a, a, a big learning season. Um, we even saw his velocity down to 90-91, which was just, free, you know, people were freaking out. <laughs> you know, even like national prospect writers um, were kind of like, what the hell is going on here? But um, but as for me, um, my faith in Matt Manning is quite strong. Um, some of you know I still continue consider Matt Manning to be the better pitching prospect than Casey Mize. Um, he's just, you know, he's 21 and he's got the experience level of a 20-year-old, um, essentially, because he started pitching so late and focusing on it so late. Um, the progress he made last year was fantastic. And early this year, the first two months, he looked outstanding. Um, we, you know, we were seeing tight 81-mile-per-hour curveballs that he was locating on both sides of the plate, um, keeping them down. You know, not having too many, you know, where he was either babying it or just kind of having it, you know, having it slip or fly out of his hand a little bit. Um, and we also saw, you know, the beginnings of a really good changeup at the end of the 2018 season. And he carried that over this year as well. Um, and we also had some recent video from Kylie McDaniel um, when Matt Manning made his start at the, or his outing anyway, his relief outing at the MLB Futures game um, on 4th of July weekend that confirmed something that we've been kind of wondering about, which was, you know, what kind of grip is Matt Manning using on his changeup? Um, he started out with a circle change. Um, and, you know, I interviewed Matt, uh, brother, I think it was before the, before the 2018 season, I believe. Um, I talked to him maybe before the 2017 season, but it was 2018 where I actually published an interview with him. <coughs> Excuse me. But at that time, you know, he was he was kind of still playing back and forth between like a circle change grip and sort of a split change. 
Um, there's all kinds of variants in how you might split your grip on a changeup, but what we saw um, in that high-speed video is that it looked like a legit, like, split-fingered fastball grip. Um, you know, a wide, you know, wide grip between the index and middle fingers, you know, almost cutting the ball in half. And the movement on that thing when he's been throwing it well is nasty. I mean, it has a lot of running life on it. Like, it moves, you know, maybe like 12 to 18 inches, you know, regularly. And we saw some that were just freakish um, with, with really good drop to um, keeping his arm speed up. You know, really hard to see it out of his hand as compared to the fastball. Um, and so all that was awesome. You know, the first couple months of the season, you know, it was fantastic on that regard. Um, really sense, you know, kind of like early June, mid-June, uh, I would say both the secondary pitches have kind of backed up on him. Uh, we haven't seen, I mean, I, I watched him tonight, um, watched most of his start, you know, threw a bunch of really, really good-looking curveballs, um, dropped him in on some people, um, got a whiff or two, but there were also, again, um, and this has kind of been the trend over the last month, there were a lot more that he just kind of babied up there and didn't really look like he had the great feel for throwing the hard, tight, swing-and-miss curveball. Um, and I only saw a couple change-ups tonight, too, and there was one in particular that was like, whoa, like, yeah, that's the good one. Uh, but there were a couple that were just kind of wonky. So, you know, he just seemed like he struggled with his feel on both of those pitches a little bit. And we were kind of hoping he would get a break, and the Tigers, I think, did the right thing uh, by basically giving him two weeks off, um, and all he had to do was go to the Futures game and pitch an inning. And that was kind of a rocky outing where, you know, you saw the power fastball and the fact that no one could really put it in play um, there was a lot of fouls, you know, where guys just couldn't get around on it. And, you know, right-handers were fouling off to the right, you know, to the right side down the first baseline, um, not anywhere close to fair territory. But he was hanging some curveballs and baby in the curveball, and that got hit for, you know, a bunch of kind of cheap singles, basically, um, and scored runs on him. But, um, and that's, again, you know, kind of what we saw tonight. So, you know, development, who's, you know, I'm sure someone else said this, but Chris Brown, um, my buddy from Tigstown, who also does the Tigers SRD podcast with Roger Martin, um, likes to re remind us all the time that development isn't linear. And, you know, if Matt Manning took three steps forward last year and one more step forward in the first part of this season, um, you know, he's taken one back since then. I think that's fair to say. Uh, but that's not unexpected. Um, you know, he's thrown a lot of innings. I think he's over 90 innings already, and he's probably only got you know, seven, seven, eight more starts, I would say. The Tigers probably want to get him to around 150, 150 innings this year. So, you know, we'll see if they kind of just keep letting him go. He doesn't look fatigued. I mean, the velocity's good. Um, he still looks, you know, relaxed out there, um, you know, sustaining his velocity easily, um, you know, and, and just a very fluid, easy delivery that doesn't look like it, you know, it requires a whole lot of, um, a lot of force, from the upper body, um, which is one of the issues that we, you know, don't necessarily love about Casey Mize's delivery is that Casey Mize tends to get the ball up early. He hides it well, um, but he also, you know, clearly has a lot more sort of like upper body, you know, arm and shoulder effort um, to deliver the ball the way he does. And there's a little bit more, I would say, injury risk there, although injury risk in pitchers, you know, is always a bit of a crapshoot. But I, I like guys who generate their power from their legs and their hips, um, the way Justin Verlander does, obviously, um, and have that easy gas, um, you know, and Manning also has the frame where he's just pumping that thing at you with a huge stride and, you know, throwing with a lot of plane. And even though his fastball isn't particularly lively, um, you know, you just see guys just lost on it, you know, the first, you know, the first time through the order, especially, and even deeper into the games, um, if he's able to locate it to both sides of the plate and move it up and down on people, 
Um, even just with a fastball alone, there aren't that many guys at the double-A level who can really deal with him. So he's got all that stuff, you know, still going for him, but he is very young. Um, you know, it, it's not a big surprise that, you know, he might take a little bit of a step back and, you know, he, he might be feeling some fatigue. That's why we were happy the Tigers gave him a break. Um, we were kind of calling for that, you know, a month ago that they would do this at some point, and they have. Um, he didn't really come back looking any sharper, but um, we'll just see how it goes the rest of the way. You know, I'm quite happy with Matt Manning's progress. I'm thrilled, in fact, and... You know, if he needs an off-season to, you know, add a little bit more muscle, um, you know, refine his mechanics a little bit more, um, you know, hopefully work on the secondary pitches, you know, I think he'll come back um, out next year and we'll see, you know, an even better Matt Manning next year. Um, his, his progress and development has been great. So, you know, even if it's kind of a lackluster second half for him or something, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be too concerned, you know, just stay healthy. Um, the dude's athleticism is off the charts. His feel's gotten a lot better. And, you know, there's just, just, you know, sky's the limit as far as how much there is to like with Matt Manning as a pitching prospect. Um, the third guy we're going to talk about is Tark Skubel, who, you know, as of three weeks ago, I had only seen, you know, one start from him when he was pitching for West Michigan. Um, they all kind of go into a black hole in Lakeland. Um, I was re- relying on James Chipman, um, who does a lot of great scouting work. Um, you know, he's, I think he's involved in Keenan Carter's um, new podcast project. That's coming out, um, which you should all kind of look for. Um, we'll probably be promoting that some on the site. Um, I think Keenan's going to still write for us some too. Um, we'll just kind of we'll just kind of play it by ear and see how that goes. <clears throat> but Chipman knows what he's talking about, and he was raving about Tariq Skubal or Tarek Skubal, excuse me, um, the whole time he was in Lakeland. And so we were kind of unsure, and this has kind of been a debate all over the place, you know, where to where to put him because his numbers at Lakeland were just bananas good. Like I mean, he was unhittable at Lakeland. Um, and it's just hard to know how to take that sometimes. Like we, you know, we saw him pitch, we saw some clips, we saw the stuff, the stuff is good. The stuff is real good. Um, and he's throwing, you know, left-handed from a pretty high angle with a a nice stride, really good rhythm, um, gets on top of the ball. And, you know, it seems I haven't looked to see what his actual spin rate is, but he can get some real riding life on that thing and just dust people. Um, and he's also got, you know, a developing really nice, slider curveball mix um and it looks to me like the curveball is the better pitch um at times but so far at erie to me it looks like it's it's been the slider and you know he's been able to spot it for strikes um he can bury it back foot to right handers it's a good pitch and you know this is a dude who can run it up 97 miles per hour from the left side Um, he changes speeds Um, his control is pretty damn good already um, you know, obviously it needs refinement to the point of, you know, being able to use his movement and, and spot pitches on both edges, move the, move the ball on and off the plate on the edges, all that sort of thing. Um, you know, you look for all that sort of refinement um, down the road. But for a guy we got in the ninth round last year, um, this is looking like a fantastic steal for the Tigers. And I'm real excited about it. Um, the question was, of course, where to rank him. And because we made our list before I'd actually really get to see him, you know, throw a couple starts. Um, And if you aren't aware, um, you know, he pitched five innings, both his first two starts, probably could have gone deeper. Um, They kept his pitch counts pretty moderate. But in both cases, you know, he just owned everybody. Um, It was was nasty stuff. He only gave up a few hits total. Um, He struck out 21 hitters in 10 or 10 innings of work. Um, I think he might have walked two guys total, if or maybe even one. Um, so it's been damn impressive, and he's going to pitch again 
on Wednesday for Erie. Um, so that's, you know, if you're anywhere in the area, go, t- go check him out because he's rapidly going to be shooting up um, everyone's prospect boards. I guarantee that. And, you know, for me, I think I had him 13th um, just ahead of Kyle Funkhauser. Uh, but now that I, you know, as soon as I got to see him and watch him for a start, you know, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that he's the Tigers' third best pitching prospect right now. Um, you know, Franklin Perez is a, is a nice pitching prospect, but I, I just don't know what to, I don't know what to do about Franklin Perez. I don't know if he's ever going to be a pitcher, even, uh, you know, maybe they figure something out and he comes right back and looks like he did before he left, which was a, you know, a very advanced pitching prospect for his age who looked like he was going to be a pretty good mid rotation starter. Um, or maybe he ends up having to retire. I mean, it, like the, the range of outcomes is just extreme with him right now. I have no idea what to say. Um, so we just kind of like split the difference as far as Franklin Perez was concerned and tried not to get too crazy with Scooble until we've, we've sort of seen him a little bit more. Um, but having actually gotten to watch him and, and really see what the stuff looks like and how it plays, um, how consistent his control is, uh, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, his durability. Can he stay healthy through this year? And if he does, you know, you're probably going to see him, I would assume, in our offseason list, probably somewhere around like fifth or sixth. Um, at worst, because it is bananas. Um, it is bananas stuff. I'm, I'm pretty blown away. Um, if you don't really know his story, uh, he, I believe he missed his, so- I think it was his sophomore year with Tommy John surgery. And he was a guy who, you know, people already thought like, yeah, this guy, you know, could be a second or third rounder. Had Tommy John surgery, came back, um, you know, kind of struggled, didn't, didn't necessarily look that great. Um, and came back again this year pitched, you know, okay, and got better as it went along. And, you know, it just seemed like he had sort of fallen off team's radar. Um, it's kind of kind of crazy that the Tigers could get a lefty with good control and already a good breaking ball who throws 97 um, from a high arm slot with a really, really pretty, pretty looking delivery uh, in the ninth round. Um, you know, it's, it's just funny sometimes how guys will just suddenly you know, kind of disappear off people's radar and they kind of get forgotten about. Um, the Tigers, you know, you know, took a gamble there, um, the way they're taking a, a gamble on, say, like Trevor, Trevor Rosenthal, or the gamble we would have liked to have seen him taken last offseason um, in Garrett Richards, and bet on a guy who, you know, whose stock had fallen because of Tommy John, and, you know, just maybe have hit the lottery. Um, and it's really, you know, that injury history is really the only, only thing that even, like, has me um, reticent to, to go nuts yet. Um, you know, we'd like to see him kind of pitch out the year, you know, see if he can be, you know, durable and consistent and throw 150 innings um, or somewhere thereabouts. We'll see what the Tigers decide to do with him. Um, but otherwise, um, you know, it it's a winner. You know, we've got a winner there. Um, he, he looks fantastic. So um, that's great. Um, I'd also like to mention Anthony Castro, whose stuff we've always liked, um, but whose, uh, you know, curveball was just kind of erratic. Um, he's a guy that I wish I could remember who who initially made this comparison. I think it might've been either Kylie McDaniel or Eric Longenhagen on fan graphs. Cause I read those guys pretty, pretty relentlessly. Um, whereas like baseball America and baseball prospectus, I kind of just, just dabble a little bit. Um, but they kind of talked about him like, uh, Carl Edwards jr. From the Cubs, um, like a guy who, you know, slender kind of a, a long, you know, kind of rhythm based delivery, um, who has, you know, a pretty elaborate wind up to generate the velocity he does. Um, and also has a really high spin rate on his breaking ball. And what Anthony Castro has done is, is switch to more of his slider 
And man, I mean, it looks good. He's been racking up the strikeouts. Um, Anthony Castro can throw 98. I still kind of feel like because of his, his size, I mean, he's a fairly slender guy. He's not real tall either. Um, and it's sort of an elaborate delivery to get that velocity, you know, and of course he, he also had Tommy John surgery way back in 2015. Um, he's a guy that I kind of like more still as a reliever. Um, and I kind of wish the Tigers would make up their mind on what they're doing with him because he's already 24. Um, guys who have had Tommy John surgery, you know, you kind of hope you get six, seven, eight years maybe out of them um, before, you know, it tends to blow out again um, without, you know, their, their delivery really changing. Um, sometimes that can be different <clears throat> because when a guy comes back from Tommy John surgery, you know, the rehab is arduous. Um, if anybody's read Jeff, Jeff Passan's book, The Arm, <clears throat> which is about Tommy John surgery and, you know, some guy in, and kind of followed like Daniel Hudson in particular, um, who had like back-to-back Tommy John surgeries, um, pitched for the Diamondbacks. Um, I can't remember where he is right now. I want to say the Blue Jays, but I'm not hundred percent sure. But, um, but I mean, it's a grueling, grueling recovery. And what tends to happen is that guys get, you know, built up in the process because there's nothing you can do but work out. You know, you have to, you know, build the range of motion again. You've got to really slowly build up the strength. But because you're so focused on that, a lot of times guys will get a boost um, just from their overall conditioning level. And, you know, sometimes that can help you, you know, resist ever having that surgery again or at least, you know, prolong the period before you're going to need another one. Um, but that's something to keep in mind with Anthony Castro that there's sort of, you know, compared to other guys, um, and again, pitcher injuries are still, uh, you know, to a crapshoot to at least a substantial degree. You know, he's a guy who you would like to, you know, find a major league role for because the stuff is already major league ready. Um, the control isn't. Now, you know, admittedly, like, it's it's a very rhythm-based delivery. It's kind of a long delivery. Um, it's an athletic delivery, and Anthony Castro does have pretty good athleticism and can make this work most of the time. But he is a guy who will just kind of, you know, go out of whack um, for an inning or two and not be able to find the strike zone and kind of look like a mess and then just pull it back together and just dominate. Um, the Tigers have been kind of jerking him around this year. He, you know, he started, and then they had him relieving, and then they had him starting again. And then he had some relief appearances and, you know, they, they've kind of called on, on him in a pinch a couple times because of rainouts and needing like a starter for, you know, for a double header and had him throw short starts. Some of those outings didn't go that well. But if you look at like his, his record when he was starting and just consistently getting, you know, normal reps, um, he's been really good this year. Um, so that's another arm that I'm interested in. And we'll just have to see if the Tigers, you know, decide to kind of keep him um, in a starting role, or if they decide, you know, the way, you know, I hate to just keep bringing up other teams who are doing well, because um, there's plenty of reasons for why, but like the Yankees um, have really kind of, you know, made a name for themselves in terms of just, you know, converting guys to relief aggressively, bringing them up, um, you know, you know, turning them into valuable assets and dealing them away for, for good prospects. Um, you know, they've done that in a couple different cases. Obviously, they did that by signing, you know, maybe the two best relievers that were available back in oh, 2015, I think it was, when they signed Araldus Chapman and they also signed Andrew Miller and were able to deal both of those guys away um, for players that are a big part of why the Yankees, you know, are a juggernaut, despite the fact that Aaron Judge and Luis Severino and 
who else? Giancarlo Stanton. Um, those guys have barely even played this year, um, and the Yankees are are still just a juggernaut because they were able to really boost what was already you know a good player development system by making those moves. So I'd like to see the Tigers kind of get on with that, um, but you know we'll just see what they decide to do there. But if you're looking at the arms um, and you're worried that Franklin Perez, you know. It has has really undercut the system, and Alex Fajardo is not looking like he's getting it done, and Kyle Funkhauser really, you know, is is kind of going backwards. Unfortunately, this year, um, you know, Scooble's gonna, you know, kind of allay some of those fears. Um, and I really like Anthony Castro, so, you know, he's probably a reliever. It's still possible that Scooble might be better used as a reliever, but especially because we're, you know, we're talking about the Tigers here, I would assume they're just gonna leave those guys in a starting role. And it's going to be interesting to see what they do next year because there's a lot of guys at Toledo right now who probably shouldn't even be pitching, um, you know, even at that level, um, that they may have to bump out of the way. Um, and, you know, if, if the Tigers, you know, envision Anthony Castro as a starter, just fine, but leave him as a starter. Don't, you know, don't don't be bumping him aside for Logan Shore, who's, you know, just, just org depth, um, or Spencer Watkins, who, you know, might have a career as a reliever ahead of him but isn't going to be a starting pitcher in the major leagues almost certainly. You know, make up your minds and go. So, that's about all for the farm system. <clears throat> you know, Derek Hill's been a little hotter lately, um, kind of picking it up. Started great, um, was terrible in May and in June, and in July has picked it back up again. Um, you know, look for a strong second half for, for him, or, you know, it's it's time to start kind of deciding to to bump him off all the prospect lists. We barely hung on to him again um, at this mid-season list that I know some people are like, why, you know, why Derek Hill forever? Well, you know, the dude can play in the outfield. Um, you know, he's super fast and he's a pretty brilliant defender out there. He's, you know, on pace to, to hit 20 home runs and, and steal 20 bases this year. So there's some power potential there. He hasn't been at AAA yet where they're using the major league ball and it's flying out all over the place. Um, so, you know, keep that in mind. Um, we'll just see how the second half goes. And I'd say the same kind of for Isaac Paredes and some of these other guys. Um, Willie Castro has been hitting the ball well um, pretty much all season, so that's been cool. Uh, Jake Rogers, you know, continues to draw walks and hit home runs and hit for low average. And I think that's probably what you can expect at the major league level. And if he can do that and be kind of a, you know, poor man's Alex Avila a little bit as a hitter, but, you know, maybe the best defensive catcher in the game or, or fairly close to it, that, that's perfectly fine. Um, that's perfectly fine as well. Um, in general, you know, the farm system is, is much stronger than I, I've ever seen it. Um, it just lacks those impact bats. And we'll get to, get to probably the best hope for, for one in just a moment when we talk about Riley Green. Um, but, you know... Isaac Prades, I would say, still has a chance to break out. But other than that, you know, if you look at the upper levels of the system, there's still really no other, like, major impact bats. Um, Daz Cameron, I, I think, has kind of had, a you know, a rough year. And the Tigers, you know, don't seem like they've been happy with him. They, you know, they, I remember he he t- totally lost a fly ball in the sun. Um, and it landed way over his head, maybe in a game about six weeks ago. And it just seems like ever since then... They've had him hitting at the bottom of the lineup. Um, you know, there, there seems to be a little bit of acrimony and some struggles going on there. Um, but that's not, you know, that's not a huge a huge concern for me yet. Daz is still plenty young. He's only 22. Um, and I think we can give him this whole year as sort of a 
sort of a reset after making a ton of progress in 2017, 2018, um, much the way I was thinking about Manning. So don't, don't start giving up on Daz Cameron yet. Um, we'll just see how things go for him next year, and I would assume that sometime next year you will see him in the major leagues, if not this year. Um, it's still possible, you know, as I've said, the second half is going to be more important. If Daz Cameron, you know, gets it going and has a great August, we may still see him get a call up in September. Um, it's just that the Tigers have some 40-man issues coming up um, where they're going to have to decide to keep, you know, Jacob Robson and Danny Woodrow, who are both, you know, the other two kind of regular outfielders at Toledo. Um, they're going to have to decide whether to add them to the 40-man or expose them to the Rule 5 draft. Um, I don't really think there's too much danger of a team claiming either one of them and keeping him there. Uh, but Robson still interests me um, in particular. And so I kind of would like to see him um, in particular. And obviously the Tigers are, you know, invested in Victor Reyes, who, you know, as far at least for a Rule 5 pick, has at least been interesting. Um, I would again urge people not to look at what he's done in the major leagues this year and and get excited though um you know the 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 contact off the bat is still incredibly weak um even though he's you know found some holes recently you know he still doesn't draw walks um he still doesn't drive the ball in the air and you know you've at least got to hit the ball hard you know victor reyes might be an average center fielder at best and he's got some speed on the bases so if he was at least you know productive and can get on base somewhat you know he's a guy who could still be useful for you um and as far as a rule five pick goes that would be that would be absolutely great but um yeah i'm, I'm still not really buying buying much of anything there but um but i think he's going to get a shot that you know the, the rest of the way um you assume nick castellanos gets traded i think you're going to see victor reyes you know playing right field next to jacoby jones um quite a bit down the stretch so at least he'll get another shot to show kind of what he can do um, you know, we'll all be rooting for him because it would be great. You know, he is a, he is a big kid who's, you know, got some, got some size and some muscle to him. Um, and he can run and, you know, we all like toolsy guys, um, who have, you know, athleticism and physical attributes, um, that, that could develop into something, but he's a guy who really feels like he needs a, you know, he needs a real swing overhaul and the Tigers just don't ever seem to do that. Um, that's about it from the, for the farm specifically. I'm going to pause, um, send you to a brief commercial and when we talk when we come back i'm going to talk about bat speed <clears throat> and one other idea i have for ways that the tigers could be getting ahead in terms of technology um were they so interested so take a little breather relax um recover from the sound of my voice um ble- bleeding at you for a solid hour now and we'll have one more section to go this is going to be kind of a long one but we haven't done one in a while so i've got a lot to say Uh, We'll be right back. Thanks. Okay. For the final segment tonight, um, I want to talk about um, kind of two aspects of player coaching and player development. Um, And the first one I'm going to talk talk about kind of through the lens of two Tigers prospects. One um, is Riley Green, uh, the Tigers' draft pick in the or first round draft pick in the 2019 draft, who so far looks amazing, guys. Um, like I, you know, I liked Riley Green, and I was kind of torn between him and JJ Blade, um, who's another outfielder for Vanderbilt, who was really good. I kind of was leaning Blade a little bit just because um, he was, you know, obviously 
more likely to be major league ready soon. Um, and I liked both of them. Uh, but I'm, I'm real excited about Riley Green after getting to watch a bunch of games um, for the Connecticut Tigers with him. Because this is a guy who has real quiet hands, um, you know, a good eye for the strike zone already, and just as pretty a swing as you're going to see and can drive the shit out of the, out of the baseball already. Um, I think the Tigers got a real good one there. And the thing about him is that Riley Green has real, real quiet, soft hands and, and a really nice, you know, quiet approach. And then he just explodes really smoothly and accelerates the shit out of the bat. Um, you know, for a guy his age, I mean, it is, it is a gorgeous swing. Um, and I want to contrast him with Daniel Panero. And Daniel Panero is probably a guy you haven't, haven't heard very much about. Um, Daniel Panero has never really been a prospect. Um, he's been in the Tigers system quite a long time. I think they drafted him in 2014 or 2015, one of the two. Um, let's see, I can tell you. Oh, no, it was 2016. Okay. Excuse me. But Daniel Panero is a big guy. He was a shortstop in college. Um, he's probably more of a, of a first baseman um, or third baseman, maybe, in reality. Um, but he's 6'5", weighs in at 230 pounds, and was never regarded as, as anything in particular. I mean, he was picked in the ninth round, which coincidentally um, matches up with Tarek Skubal. But um, the thing about Daniel Panero that I just have not been able to get over the past two seasons is the fact that he draws an awful lot of walks and doesn't strike out a whole lot. Um, he struck out more since he moved to AA um, and to Toledo. Um, but again, this year, you know, he strikes out about 23, 24% of the time, but he's walked something close to 12% of the time. Um, well, maybe not even, more like 11, but that's still a really good walk rate. And if you watch Daniel Panero, this is a guy who has a, a pretty damn good idea of the strike zone. Um, for a guy that no one, you know, thinks about or talks about, to have a guy of his size uh, who could play in the infield to some degree um, and could certainly play first base for you, um, who has this good of an eye, uh, is is pretty interesting. You know, there's just something a little bit compelling about that because we see so few guys um, in the Tiger system who really have that kind of plate discipline. Um, and it's not just, and when we talk about plate discipline, I mean, you could kind of break it down into three different things. There's, you know, there's like directional recognition, like where the pitch starts out of the, out of the pitcher's hand. There's the ability to recognize spin. And then there's the, the ability to adjust to velocity, um, to adjust to change-ups um, versus fastballs. And Daniel Panero seems to kind of have all those attributes um, to a degree that very few hitters in the Tiger system do. And yet, and he also, and as I said, he's, he's got the size where you would think he would hit for a lot of power. But the problem is that he doesn't hit for that much power. Um, he's got some, I mean, he hit, I think it was nine home runs um, in the Florida State League last year, which isn't particularly good um, for a guy who, you know, you're looking at as being a first baseman. But he does hit, you know, a decent amount of home runs, but not anywhere near what you would hope for. And he moved up to Toledo, um, I don't know, it was probably the beginning of June. After, you know, doing a pretty nice job um, with the Erie Seawolves, um, you know, posted a 116 WRC+, plus, you know, walked 8.7% of the time, struck out 25% of the time, hit seven home runs. 
you know, we kind of, I was been kind of keeping an eye on him because I wanted to see what would happen when he went to AAA and got the new, you know, the MLB Super Bowl, um, which has been, you know, wreaking havoc with um, AAA pitchers um, since they decided to introduce it this year. Um, some of you may have, you know, saw some of uh, Justin Verlander's, you know, new rants about about the um, the ball and its construction. Um, Baseball America had a pretty, uh, yeah, I think it was Baseball America had a pretty good article about this where they were also talking about the fact that the new ball like feels different and how it's a bit of an adjustment now for pitchers um, to even pitch with this ball because it, you know, it, it feels a little bit different in the hand. Um, you know, it's supposed to weigh the same, the diameter is supposed to be the same, but the cover is smoother, um, at least, you know, according to some people. And the seams are lower, and that's been proven. Um, and that's part of the reason why there's less drag on the ball, and we're seeing more home runs leave the park, even though average exit velocity hasn't really changed, you know, to correspond with that. And if you're thinking, you know, of all the other reasons why balls could be flying out of the park, it's it's the ball. It's specifically the ball, guys. Um, you can argue about how much that effect is, and I don't think that's, you know, that's been perfectly determined. But they know the exit velocity and the launch angle of every, you know, pitch that comes off the off a bat. And you can take the same exit velocity and the same launch angle um, from, you know, three, four years ago. Well, or even before the home run madness started um, after the All-Star break in 2015. If you go back to that old data and compare it to now, the same you know, launch angle, the same exit velocity, the balls are flying farther uh, much more often. And drag, you know, reduction in drag is really the only, you know, kind of feasible explanation for that. But my point being that they introduced that ball to the um, AAA level this year. And so I wanted to see if Danny Pinero, you know, would kind of have, you know, a home run breakout. And he's only got 110 plate appearances so far. Um, he's hit four home runs. Um, he's walking 16.4% of the time, striking out 22.7% of the time, which is awesome, flat out awesome. Um, but again, you know, it's only been, you know, I think he's only played like 30 games there, um, 28 games. But the thing about Daniel Pinero is that he doesn't have Riley Green's bat speed sort of at all. And you can see that even with good plate discipline, there's just there's just that difference in in bat speed, and so first thing I want to do is define bat speed um, as it as it pertains to this because I really bat speed is kind of a bad term, and I I was initially confused about it when I started reading, you know, more in depth about like how to scout players and this and that um, years back, and really like the way to think about bat speed is almost more like bat acceleration. Um, it's there are plenty of, you know you can go to any you know softball field. And find guys who can generate, you know, substantial bat speed. You know, any big, big honking guy who, you know, has the time to generate all this, you know, all the speed he can, can generate a lot, you know, get the bat moving at a pretty high velocity and hit the ball far. But there's a difference between that and being able to accelerate it quickly enough to give yourself time to react to the pitch and still get to that bat speed smoothly and drive the ball. And that's why, you know, the, the, the two things are different. You know, there are guys who will hit for power. You know, you think of like Ulrich Boyarski in particular um, is a good example of a guy who his bat speed isn't bad, but it doesn't, it doesn't match up with, you know, the actual speed he's able to generate the bat because he's a big, super strong individual who can mash some pretty epic taters when he gets a hold of one. But no one really thinks he's going to continue to do that because he can't accelerate the bat to that speed fluently enough to give himself those extra seconds um, to recognize pitches. And, I mean, to a certain degree, 
recognizing pitches, having that kind of an eye, you know, th- there's a, there's an innate component to that. Like, you know, you can't teach Miguel Cabrera's, you know, vision and hitting intelligence. Um, you know, some guys are just super gifted. Miguel Cabrera is obviously super gifted and also can generate, you know, stupid bat speed with, with what is a really, you know, short, fairly compact swing. He can accelerate the bat in, you know, an instant. Um, and get it going from zero to 100 miles an hour, you know, faster than other guys can get it from zero to 70 or 80 miles an hour. And the interesting about about bat speed, when you think, when you realize that that's more what we're what we're talking about, is that there are, you know, there are even you know kind of slappy hitter type guys, like guys who might only get the bat moving, you know, 90 miles per hour is is you know roughly their max. Um, but there are guys who can get to that speed faster than others, even in that same ilk of, you know, light hitting kind of, you know, infielder types or speedy outfielders, um, you know, there's still a difference in there and being able to get to get to your max speed and keep the bat on plane and keep the barrel, you know, moving through the zone on, on plane to the pitch, um, is, is a gift that, or, and a skill because it is, I do think it's teachable. And I think a lot of the work that's been going on, um, recently to, to help guys develop that, has, has sort of shown that. And if you can't teach a guy, you know, to recognize pitches better, the only thing you can do for him is to increase the amount of time that he has to be able to decide. And we're talking fractions of seconds, of course. But if you can get a guy, you know, stronger, if you can get his bat path cleaner, if you can get his stroke cleaner, you can still teach a guy to get the bat to full speed faster. And as a result, you can wait just that extra split second on the pitch and hopefully improve your plate discipline um, as a result and recognize the pitch a little bit more effectively. And that's something that we're seeing, um, you know, quite a few of the the super high-tech modern teams like the Astros and Dodgers doing. And it doesn't mean to say that you can't teach plate discipline because I do think, you know, teams are, are moving toward, and, I, you know, I should mention this because it was interesting, a couple of years ago, I had a couple conversations just just by text with um, Gabe Kapler, manager of the the Phillies, um, who referred to me as brother um, over and over, which was completely on brand and and made by day. But I was asking him, you know, like how are the are the pitching machines that are coming out? You know, are they getting to the point where they're going to be able to, you know, actually have an arm and like mimic the arm angle? Because they've already got pitching machines, and I don't know if the Tigers have one or not. I hope to God that they've that they've got this um, in their and they're spending spree on technology this offseason if they haven't already. But, you know, they've got it where you can dial in velocity and the spin and, you know, and and dial in like, okay, we're going to face Trevor Bauer tonight. You know, the spin rate on his curveball is this, and it comes in at this velocity. And we're going to, you know, mix that back and forth between his four-seam fastball and his curveball, and we can dial in the pitch. But it's still different than actually being able to see the arm in the right angle, you know, some kind of a swinging arm that, that can release the ball. And he was saying that those those kind of pitching machines are already in development. Um, and this was a while back. This was before he got the Phillies job. Um, when I was kind of, you know, arguing about, you know, obviously the Tigers aren't the type to hire Gabe Kapler um, for personality reasons for, you know, it, like he just, you know, he's not a fit. And I didn't really think they were going to hire him. But my point was that if you take a guy like that who is, you know, well-versed in, in what the best teams are doing in terms of player development – and Gabe Kapler, you know, is, is one of the authors of sort of the diet and nutrition revolution and, and conditioning revolution 
um, which he, you know, he made huge points for um, in, as the director of player development with the Dodgers and, you know, and really like focusing on sleep and health in, in his players. And that's something that we've seen spread everywhere. And the Tigers have got on board, you know, have, have put chefs throughout the system, you know, to cook for the guys regularly to give them, you know, like the best nutrition possible. Um, you know, he's got a track record of that sort of thing. So I knew he was a good guy to ask about that. And he was convinced that those things are coming. And we've already seen that the Astros in their minor league system, those guys have, have largely eliminated BP. Um, guys can still take BP if they want to, but the Astros, it seems to me, have decided that um, facing pitches at less than game speed, you know, is actually maybe even bad for you, let alone, like, just not particularly helpful for anything other than limbering you up. They would rather see you... If you're not facing game speed pitches, hit off the tee and work to perfect your swing mechanics. And then before a game, you go down in the cages and face pitching machines that can, you know, that can mimic the stuff you're going to see from that night's starting pitcher and, and work on that, you know, specifically. Um, and, you know, th that all makes perfect sense to me. And those are the kind of things that we'd like to see, you know, the, the Tigers doing more. But the problem is that Danny Pinero doesn't seem to have that bat speed. Um, he's got kind of a hitch. He's got sort of a long load. Um, for a guy who's 6'5", 230, you know, he doesn't really look like he has great upper body strength. Um, you know, he's got kind of skinny arms for a guy that size. Um, you know, he, and that, that difference is kind of the key. They both, I'm sure between him and Riley Green, there are differences in, you know, in innate ability. Um, and Riley Green's father was a, you know, a hitting coach and Riley Green grew up in the batting cages. Um, so he has some probably advantages there as well, but it's that difference in, in bat speed that allows Riley Green to square up pitches that Daniel Pernero may recognize as strikes, but also, you know, pops up. And Daniel Pernero hits the ball in the air, so this isn't just like a, a simple, like, launch angle thing where, hey, teach everybody fly ball, you know, <laughs> approach, and we'll just launch everything in the air, we'll be great. Um, you know, that's, that's a simplistic approach to it, and obviously, like, the, the whole launch angle terminology has been, has been overdone. But that's, that's a difference where... You know, I, I wonder greatly if rather than trying to improve guys' plate discipline um, and and failing as the Tigers, you know, consistently do, um, and, you know, and probably a lot of that is the talent level. You know, the Tigers haven't done a particularly good job drafting position prospects, and they haven't invested many of their recent top picks in um, position player prospects. You know, they took Parker Meadows last year in the second round. They took Riley Green in the first round this year. Um, and both of those guys have, you know, have potential. Um, Riley Green has a lot of potential. But if you can teach a guy to improve his bat speed, you may be able to overcome some of that um, for some of those guys. Whereas with, you know, Daniel Pinero, he's already 25. He's never been a prospect. And it's hard to imagine him, like, changing his swing substantially, um, you know, and I don't know, like, can the guy go out and, you know, add some muscle and strengthen his forearms and wrists and, you know, and, and shorten his swing to the point where he can wait just that little bit longer and still drive the ball on plane? I don't know. Um, it, you know, at this point in time, you know, he's not regarded as a prospect, but because of the numbers he's put up, because of the, the strikeout to walk ratio that he's put up and the fact that he has started to hit for a little more power, he has that size, um, you know, people are interested in him, but hopefully, you know, kind of describing the difference between those two guys helps you to kind of, and if you go watch some, some tape of those guys, you'll see, you know, Riley Green doesn't have to like move back and load up. You know, his hands don't move back that much toward the catcher. It's quiet and he just explodes through the ball um, and, you know, is going zero to 110, 
hundred miles per hour, um, you know, in the same time, that, you know, or faster than Daniel Pinero can go from zero to 95. And those pitching machines that we're talking about may help guys, you know, learn to recognize spin, um, learn to recognize the ball out of the hand. Um, and I would love to see the Tigers, you know, be among the forefront, you know, with, with that and really invest in someone, you know, designing a, you know, super high level pitching machine that, that they can use to, to teach plate discipline, let guys just, you know, even when they're not hitting, even when they're tired, you just stand in there and you just see pitches and, you know, and, and learn to recognize the spin um, and, and try to work on that as much as possible. But the other aspect, the, and really the only other way that you're going to give yourself a little more time to recognize pitches is to be able to wait a little longer and still get the barrel out, you know, and, and catch pitches out in front. Um, and that's something that you would think that they would focus on more. Um, but again, you know, we have Lloyd McClendon as our hitting coach. Um, you know, there are guys who have probably benefited from Lloyd McClendon. Um, but you know, I, even last year, this was kind of a, you know, just kind of a classic Lloyd McClendon story. Whereas before the season, you know, he was talking about Leonis Martin and how, you know, he was going to get him, you know, he thought he'd gotten to launch angle happy and was trying to pull everything in the air and all this stuff. And, you know, he wanted him to use his speed and go back to more of an up the middle line drive type of approach. And what happened? Leonis Martin, you know, put together probably the, the best three months of hitting of his entire career. Um, it hasn't carried over, but he did. The, the problem was that he did that by pulling balls in the air <laughs> and actually even gave a quote about, you know, he didn't specifically say I'm ignoring Lloyd McLennan's advice, but he did say something along the lines of, no, I just, you know, I try to block all that out. You know, I know what I need to do. And, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, me working and, and being healthy enough to do it, um, which was kind of a hilarious sort of deflation of, um, of, of Lloyd's hitting philosophy. And you have to assume that that philosophy permeates the entire system, you know, the Tigers are obsessed with the shift. Um, no one talks about like beating the shift more than the Tigers do. And it's pure nonsense. Um, that's not the way to get ahead. It just isn't, um, you know, guys are beating the shift by hitting home runs and maybe at some point the ball will change magically. Justin Verlander will be happy. All the home runs will collapse and guys who can, you know, slap the ball the opposite way more can drop down a bunt, will, you know, suddenly achieve primacy again. Um, and it'll be the eighties and speed players will be, you know, the, the norm. But, um, right now it just feels like the, the, you know, the Tigers continue to have a very backwards approach to hitting. And so there's one suggestion to, you know, do everything possible with technology and in the weight room and in terms of swing mechanics to improve guys, bat speed, the guys who, you know, you think could be good players, but, you know, don't recognize pitches that well, um, you know, and, and don't hit for the kind of power that you want. You know, you might be able to do more in the weight room and with, with pitching machines than you can with trying to teach guys to bunt, <laughs> wasting plate appearances, um, you know, trying to teach them all to, you know, slap balls the opposite way and run, all this kind of, you know, all this kind of, you know, really regressive um, philosophy compared to what, you know, basically every other smart, successful team in the league is doing. The second thing I would like to suggest is that I haven't seen anyone doing this yet, and I'm going to wrap it up with this, but I, it's kind of hard to imagine that, that, that no one has got onto this yet. And some of, this, some of the reason I think about these things this way is because um, my baseball career ended when I was like 16. Um, couldn't, you know, couldn't make the high school team, couldn't hit, 
Uh, my family had moved, so I didn't know anybody. I didn't have like the travel team connections anymore or any of that stuff. Went to a tryout. Was terrible. Couldn't hit it, hit worth a damn, and that ended it. And what happened right then is I decided like, okay, I'm switching full time to golf. And as it happens, possibly because golf is more of an individualized sport, um, because instruction has always been individualized. It's not a team game. It doesn't have all that. Even though golf does have a lot of tradition behind it, there's a lot more individual instructors. Um, and you know, PGA Tour pros only get paid if they win or if they place high. Like you don't get a contract and just you know get to chill um, and and fail. That there's been a lot more innovation, both in technology and in the way technology is used to teach the game. And as early as like this, this is just me explaining why the heck I got into golf um, and and how that led to some of the ways I think about you know swing mechanics and teaching teaching pitching in particular. Um, so anyway, I ended up teaching teaching golf a bit when I was a teenager. Um, the guy I took lessons from would have me teach like his teenagers, and as a result. I got to scam my mom because she would give me twenty dollars to go, or yeah, twenty dollars a week to go to the range and hit a couple buckets of balls, and I would get free balls because I would give these kids lessons, and then I would go buy myself a CD and some snacks, and this all worked out very well for me. But it really got me thinking about the way mechanics in your swing as as a golfer work, and it's led to my interest in trying to understand better how mechanics like that and how technology can can work with that in baseball. And, you know, 20 years ago, maybe, maybe not quite, but close, you know, golfers were already, you know, measuring the spin off, off the club face. They were measuring launch angle and velocity. And it wasn't that long after that, that some guys started using a bit of like motion capture to like, okay, I'm going to film all my swings. It's going to make a computer model. I'm going to pick out like the swings that feel perfect and get the best results. And then I'm going to have, you know, that model swing right there. And then every other swing I, you know, I make from that, you know, I can compare myself to that. And I would love, love to see a team do that with their pitchers. You know, when you're in a bullpen, you know, they've got the rap soto down there, you know, or you're on the mound, maybe throwing a side session and they've got track man on you model a pitcher's best delivery. Like when he's like, yep, that's, that's the perfect fastball for me that, you know, nailed it. Like all my mechanics were perfect and smooth. My velocity was good. The spin was what I wanted it to be. My release point was perfect. My stride length was perfect. Blah, blah, blah. Bam. You take that delivery in video form and say, you make the, you know, make that like red, like, okay. So you watch the video of yourself and they model you as a red human figure throwing that perfect pitch. And then when you're in a side session later or when you're warming up for a game or when you're wondering what the hell's going wrong because you've lost your command or you can't find your breaking ball or whatever, yeah, it's nice to have Edgertronic. It's nice to have the high-speed cameras and it's nice to have Rapsodo. But if you could keep modeling your delivery and just capture it and, and turn yourself into a model and then just superimpose that over the delivery that you made when you were you know feeling perfect and everything was located... Um, spinning properly, your mechanics were good. You'll be able to just superimpose, say, you know, a green, a green version of the last pitch you made over that perfect model of that of that pitch, and see where you're off. And I would love, love to see a team get into that and and start doing that to where in real time when you're warming up, you could see like, oh yeah, my arm was lagging there, um, you know, or my stride length was was wrong, or I, you know, I stepped too far to the side a little bit. You know, teachers all try to do that kind of thing and, and show you that sort of thing. And yeah, you can look at like, okay, this is your foot landed there. You spun out, you know, you, you flew open a little bit or you were too close. 
Um, but all this stuff happens too fast and baseball has been, you know, really like stuck in the past for so long. And it's just, you know, in the last few years since like the JD Martinez, you know, swing chains revolution and like Justin Turner and, um, Josh Donaldson, Jose Bautista has gotten into that, you know, that aspect where guys are really working on their mechanics that way and trying to fine tune them. And there are some really cool ways that you could use technology to help you course correct every time. Um, and I think that could be great because too much of baseball instruction and you still, you don't hear it so much from some of the top orgs, but you hear it in the Tigers organization all the time. Like if you listen to what they're telling, you know, a hitter, it's the same old kind of like old advice, like, oh, you're stepping in a bucket or you're not getting the barrel out ahead enough or, you know, keep your, you know, your, your top hand, you know, you have to keep palm up at impact, all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, and that last one is even like specific enough to possibly help you, but communicating those things in language when everyone kind of comes from a different background as far as how they were taught growing up, you know, how things were, you know, the terminology that was used with them, all that kind of stuff is a challenge that could be overcome if you have coaches who understand how to, you know, make a model of, of what they want you to do and, you know, keep superimposing the model of what you're doing over it until you can, so that you can see where you're off and keep refining those things. would love to see a team try that. Just a suggestion, Tigers. I don't know what that would cost, but, you know, I mean, they do motion capture in the movies. Um, you know, it doesn't cost, you know, billions of dollars. Um, and, you know, and that's to, like, animate everything. There's got to be a way that, you know, such a thing can be done if it's not being done already by that freaking Astros or Dodgers, those monsters. That a team could use that as just an epic teaching tool. I mean, just imagine a pitcher can go down in the bullpen and he's, you know, he's wild. He doesn't know what's wrong. He's not spinning the breaking ball. Like he's, he's hanging things, you know, he's pulling everything to his glove side. You just take that delivery, you superimpose it over his good delivery and he can, he can see where it's going wrong. You know, is it going wrong in the way that, you know, you're taking the ball back? Are you, you know, raising your, raising your leg differently? Is your stride different? Are you, you know, not getting to the same release point? You know, a myriad of things. I would love to see that. And I will leave you with that um, at the end of this endless, endless podcast. Um, and hopefully most of you were able to make it. Um, hopefully you, you took the three sections as I broke them up and I will put that in the description of the podcast so that you can hopefully kind of, uh, kind of walk, walk through it at your own leisure because yeah, this was a long one and I'm sorry. And it's just me. So anyway, there are my long rambling thoughts for this week. Um, as I said, at the beginning of this thing, we will try to get back with some podcasts, um, maybe even later on this week, but probably next week. And we will start kind of, um, bringing some of the staff in here, hopefully, and, um, possibly a guest as well. Um, I'd still like to get Emily Walden back, back in here, who was at the all-star game and the futures game, um, and get, get you some special guests. And then, yeah, within two weeks or so, Ashley should be back and we'll get back to our normal schedule where we do the normal Tuesday BYB podcast. And then I will just kind of keep doing my hopefully much shorter than this, uh, BYB weekend edition podcast. So thank you. Thank you very much to all of you who listen um, thank you to all of you who read Bless You Boys and comment. Um, you guys all make, you know, make the sport so much more fun um, for me and the whole staff to, you know, to cover and, and talk about and argue about. Um, even when we're all mad at each other and furious at the Tigers and screaming at each other, um, it still makes everything much more enjoyable to have this community. And God, I can't wait for the day when the Tigers are competitive again and we can all enjoy that together. Thank you very much. Everybody have a good night. Go Tigers, eventually.